a very fitting song for us to sing just before we open God's word and come to this time. Of course, most of you are familiar that our worship service is a combination of different things. Uh, I mentioned fellowship earlier. I do hope that you're able to connect on some level with another follower of Jesus Christ in our fellowship. That might come through the uh, Sunday school hour or adult Bible fellowship hour. Might come through a ministry. This uh, worship team and praise team, they fellowship. They spend time together every week. Might be through a project, maybe uh, doing something alongside with somebody else or through some time of prayer. You know, the longer I am in ministry, the more I realize that um, what some people think is a last resort or what some people think is not as key of a ministry and that's the ministry of prayer, is something that we have to have. This, is, this ministry of prayer is gonna be fuel on the fire of what is going on here in this church, and we need people to be a part of that, people in your own prayer closets, but also praying with one another. There's a special fellowship that comes when we pray with each other. We are continuing our study in the book of Acts, and hopefully it's an encouragement to you. We're looking towards the end of it, and I want to stop one more time and ask for God's blessing as we examine his word. Heavenly Father, we do look to you with the promise that you will give wisdom. And God, as we come now with open hearts and with the word of God open, I would ask that the Holy Spirit will be clearly involved teaching. As we have your perfect word recorded for us and what a wonderful journey it's been through the book of Acts to see the Holy Spirit clearly involved what a wonderful blessing it is for your children to be able to see the Holy Spirit clearly involved, obviously present in what we are doing. We ask that you would bless this time when we look into your word now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There is a certain kind of confidence that runs through the veins of a person that is able to walk with a pure conscience. When someone understands that they are not hiding something, they are not working to defend themselves from somebody finding out something that they might be able to grab a hold of, there's a confidence that comes with that. Even last night, one of those uh, murder mystery TV news specials was on, and I was interested because um, they had a couple main suspects in this murder case, and as they went and had these two suspects, both of them would very openly say, oh, I'll come down and talk to the police. I've got nothing to hide. How wonderful for that to be the case, to have nothing to hide. And I wonder how many of us can sit here with nothing to hide. Having a pure conscience, some of you having your kids knowing you so well, or your spouse knowing the worst parts of your character, and to be able to walk in this world in a way where we do not have to fear someone finding out something about us. But I want to suggest to us that just because you have the truth on your side, does not mean you're going to be free from accusation. Does not mean you're going to be free from others wanting to hurt you. But it is nice to be able to stand in confidence. I can remember one time where I had to stand on what I knew was the truth, but I had several things going against me. I was in high school. It was the fall of 1988, and I got called to the principal's office. How many of you can say you've ever been called to the principal's office? Raise your hand. Anybody else? Please keep your hands up. I'm just, okay, 
All right, I'm feeling a little bit better. Okay, very good. I, saw, that's, we, I got, had one homeschooler raise their hand. I'm not sure <laughs> how that works. As I got called to the principal's office, I very quickly realized that I was being accused of something that I had not done. Someone had uh, taken a note and written a very inappropriate and vulgar note and slipped it inside the locker of one of the girls in the school where I was at. Had not done this, I would not consider doing that, but someone had pointed to me as a person that they thought did it. They They saw me hanging out around there. And as I sat in here, I had the wonderful assurance that I was innocent, which can be a good feeling, Having said that, I found myself across the desk from an individual who was specifically gifted at his job of being a principal and more so gifted at getting a confession out of young people. And he was very intimidating. His name was Mr. Handyside. That was my principal for many of my years, Mr. Handyside. And he was pretty convinced that I had done it or else he was putting on a good front because he made me feel like I had done something that I had not done. He was intimidating There was a fist that was pounding on the desk. And all I had to stand on was the fact that I had a clear conscience and I had not done that. He was good at getting confessions, but I was innocent. And in this office, with this intimidating authority figure, I found myself in a tough spot. I'm going to tell you how that story ends when we come to the end of our time today and what turned out from that meeting that I had. In the meantime, if you're taking notes, let me go ahead and give you a takeaway from the message today. And I think you'll see this from the Apostle Paul and in this court session, if we can call it that, that he was in. Here is a good takeaway that summarizes what we want to gain from this text. As Christians, we have the truth on our side. Therefore, we do not apologize for it, nor do we shrink from the opportunity to declare it. Let me say that again. As Christians, we have the truth on our side. And so we do not apologize for being in the right, for having the truth. And we do not run away or shrink from opportunity to declare it. All that to bring us to our text. If you're not already there, please turn to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 in your Bibles. If uh, you do not have a Bible, uh, there should be one in a pew rack in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible of your own that you, um, that you have in your possession, we'd invite you to take that Bible that's there and keep that. That's our gift to you as a church. We want everybody to have a Bible, so you can take that as a gift from us to you. Acts chapter 24, let me give us some background. We've been um, on at least a one-week break from our studying Acts as I was out of town Let me just go ahead and fast forward to the transition when Paul goes from being an active missionary, planting churches and preaching to where he becomes a prisoner. He had been in the temple in Jerusalem. We talked for several weeks leading up to this time when he would be in Jerusalem. And as he was there and as he was helping some of these Jews fulfill a Nazarite vow, he was trying to gain confidence with the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. They thought that he was against the Jewish law, and so he was helping them out. Paul found himself in the temple, and there were some Asian Jews that saw him there, and they saw the opportunity to seize him, and maybe even, some of you will remember, kill him at this point. They tried to kill him right there, saying that he had broken their law. They started a riot. They got the crowd that was there in Jerusalem um, uh, up in an uproar, 
It was feast time and it was easy to get people going. They basically cried, help, when they saw Paul in the temple because they were saying that he took a Gentile into the inner part of the temple. And you'll remember that actually the Romans who were in charge, they would permit this religious group to kill a Gentile that entered into that part of the temple when he wasn't supposed to. That was how they appeased the Jews. Paul is saved by the Roman guards. And last time we were in our study in the book of Acts, we saw that plot as he is now um, under guard, but they still wanted to kill him, so they made this plan to have him transported somewhere. And I think it was 40, more than 40 men took that vow to neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now, when the tribune got word of this, he automatically, at 9 o'clock at night, got 470 soldiers together and sent them off to Caesarea. Some of you that are going on that trip to Israel, we're going to go to see Caesarea and the place where Paul stands and gives this defense. It's been uncovered, and it's a beautiful place right next to the Mediterranean Sea. And so that's where Paul finds himself. He has just been transported by night. He's now in Caesarea waiting for trial. I'm going to back up just a few verses from Acts 24 just to give us the background. Look with me in verse number 33 of Acts 23. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. I know that I'm not always the easiest person to take notes on, but I made it pretty easy for us today. I'm going to have just three points in the sermon. First of all, we have the prosecution in verses 1 through 9. The prosecution. We're going to see that starting in verse number 1 of Acts 24. Look at it with me. After five days, remember he was waiting for the accusers to come. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, let's stop right there. This guy Tertullus, let's talk about him just for a moment. He was not as much a lawyer as he was a hired orator. He was a professional. He was one who knew how to make an impact and he was one that they were going to try to get to win a case when they had no substance to their case. Every once in a while, you'll come across lawyers that will take a high-profile case. Even when it seems like they can't win, they'll still take that case. And oftentimes, I think some lawyers will take that to get some popularity, maybe to gain an opportunity to get more high-profile cases in the future. Who knows, they could win that impossible case and become very famous. Maybe you can remember some of the famous court cases over the years. Some of you might remember a famous line from a very, very famous court case quite some time ago. I won't tell you which case it was, but I'll ask you to fill in the blank if you remember this famous line. It went like this. The lawyer said this. If the glove does not fit, you must, what? Acquit. Some of you remember that one. Isn't that amazing? how more than, I think it's more than 20 years later, we can remember that line. He was a famous lawyer. This man, Tertullus, was hired to do something that was very difficult, to convict Paul without any evidence 
And more than that, without any witnesses, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, this particular orator, he was very, very heavy on flattery, as you'll see. And he was also very heavy on exaggeration, as you'll see, and very light on content. Look at verse number two with me again, and we'll go all the way down through verse nine. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. All right. So there wasn't very much content in there. In fact, it seems like he says, if you will just question him, you're going to see that all of these things are true. And as Tertullus makes his point, we find that he actually has three accusations, three accusations that he makes about Paul. First of all, he says that Paul is stirring up riots. He says Paul is a leader of a dangerous group, the sect of the Nazarenes. And then he also says that Paul was attempting to profane the Jewish temple. And none of these are true. When we look at that first one, stirring up riots, we know something as we've studied the book of Acts and this culture. The Romans, there were a few things that were very high on their radar. And if you wanted to advance in the ranks of Roman leadership, when you were given a place to be responsible over, the, um, the higher-up leaders did not like it when there were riots, when there were people rising up, and they hated disorder. And so this is something that's going to catch Felix's ear. And then he accuses him of leading a sect of the Nazarenes. Who did they call the Nazarene? Do you remember? It was Jesus, right? our Savior. Oftentimes they would call the followers of Jesus Nazarenes. And the reputation of Jesus would have been known by Felix, would have been known by the area because the gospel was spreading. We have seen the fire of the gospel going from one city to another as Paul preaches. The impact would have been known around the world. And then this third accusation that he profaned the temple. And I mentioned earlier that the Romans would actually permit someone to be killed if they went inside that. It was about a four-foot wall. They had signs up in a couple different languages saying, if a Gentile comes on this side of this wall, his death is on his own head. And in the beginning and in the end, Tertullus knew that he only had what we would call today circumstantial evidence he could not make a hard case with this but he did his best to um, dress it up didn't he and did you notice how many compliments went along with that as he talked to Felix really buttering him up now it's appropriate to call someone your honor in that place but I mean he really went on boy is that a new haircut you've got I love your toga you've had something a nip a tuck something and he really really did his best to work with what he had which was not very much Next, we see the defense. 
Let's go ahead and look, with that, look at that. We'll start in verse number 10 to see the defense. We'll go through verse uh, 10 through 13. When the governor had nodded, I wonder what that looked like. When he had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Not flattery, but the equivalent of calling him your honor. He denies stirring up crowds. In fact, he mentions the time frame. Paul has all the facts on his side. He had only been uh, 12 days since he had gotten to Jerusalem. And five of these days, he was actually waiting in jail for his trial. So seven days would not be enough time to organize a rebellion like they're accusing him of. And also, really, the, the lack of smoking gun here is the lack of witnesses, Going back all the way to the Old Testament law, and we can see Solomon learning about this, you not only needed one eyewitness, you needed two witnesses to prove something. And they had no witnesses. And so if they had no case, and Paul, being a Roman, can very easily get out of this, why doesn't he? What's he thinking? Why is he going to choose to continue to go in front of leaders in front of judges, in front of a king, and make his case. There is no proof, but he actually confesses something here. I think that's why he was there. He confesses something to them. Look in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. So we see here as he speaks, he talks about that sect of the Nazarenes, which he calls the way. You'll notice a capital W in your Bible there. The way. And he talks to Felix about this group that Felix would be familiar with for a couple different reasons. First of all, he was a leader, and he wasn't a moral leader. He was actually a very poor leader. He might have suspected that Tertullus was lying to him when he said how great a job he was doing. But he would know about this religious movement of the gospel and the effect that it had throughout the region and how it was spreading across the world. But even more so, why Felix would have known about this was because of his wife. His wife, Drusilla, was a Jewess, and she very possibly may have educated him on her background. Maybe she had heard of Paul. Let's continue on, verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves 
Say what wrongdoing, what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. If they have witnesses, they need to bring them. The law stated that someone who was accused had a right to defend himself against the witnesses. They were not there. I did not fact check this. Maybe some of you will know better than I, but it reminded me without the witnesses there of something that where I grew up anyway, if you received a traffic ticket, um, some kind of an infraction, breaking the law, and if you went to your court date for that traffic ticket, but the officer that gave it to you was not there, it would be taken away. I see some heads nodding yes, and we do have a lawyer or two in the crowd, I think. So if you were to go to that court and the the officer did not show up, you would get out of that ticket. How many people do you think have been guilty of that infraction but just showed up at that court date just crossing their fingers and hoping, and some of you even praying, that that officer did not show up so they wouldn't have to pay that ticket? get those points on their record. You know, I think a lot of people would do that with their fingers crossed. The Apostle Paul doesn't have to guess that the witnesses are not coming. He welcomes them to come. In fact, this has been the confusion of the Romans the entire time. The tribune, you'll remember, he sees them beating Paul to death. He goes and rescues him. After a few different instances, he finds out he's a Roman citizen. He can't let him go because they're going to kill him. But he cannot hold a Roman citizen without a charge. He passes it on to Felix. Felix was going to pass the same situation on to Festus. And Festus is going to pass it on to King Agrippa. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. Because they're in a spot. They could not hold a Roman citizen without a charge. There's nothing for him to be charged with. Look in verse 21. Other than this one thing, here's what he confesses. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to, there's that difficult word again, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, if you were paying attention, you saw earlier that Paul references the resurrection, the resurrection that was talked about in the law and by the prophets. So what he is doing is he is saying that these individuals do believe in a resurrection. But they did not believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel uh, chapter 12 verse 2 talks about a resurrection. These people who studied their Old Testament would know this. It talks about a resurrection where there will be a judgment for the righteous and for the wicked. Also, one familiar one that's very, very interesting is in John chapter 11. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Lazarus when Jesus was walking here in this world and Lazarus um, died. And we find that short little verse there where Jesus wept. And we all talk about why did he weep? Was it because Lazarus died or because um, Lazarus was gonna come back from where he was, paradise? Or was it because of the hurt that his friends Mary and Martha were going through? But something that came through right there in John chapter 11 is when he talks to Martha. You'll remember this. He talks to Martha and he says, take heart. He's going to rise again. Jesus is gonna bring bring Lazarus back from the dead. And I was always impressed by Martha's understanding of uh, future events because she said this at that point in John 11. I know that my brother, I will see him again in the resurrection. She knew. The Jews believed in a resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, 
They did not. Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had to put aside their differences. And the Sadducees hated this. And I imagine they had to hold their tongues just to get through this hearing here. And he talks about that resurrection. And he confirms to these Roman leaders what everybody already knew. This is just a matter of religion. And the Romans really didn't care about what they did in religion. They cared about riots. Paul said, I didn't do that. They cared about leading some kind of a dangerous group. Paul says, I am not that leader of a dangerous group. He says it comes down to a matter of religion. And he confirms what Claudius Lysias did when he said, I cannot. He wrote that letter to Felix and said, I cannot find anything to charge him with except to do with their religion. That's what he said. All right, let's go ahead and get to the end here. and We'll find that court is adjourned court is adjourned and it's actually adjourned for two years look in verse number we'll look in verse 21 Uh, well we'll skip to 22 we already did 21 22 says but felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way put them off saying when lysias the tribune comes down i will decide your case then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. And then we have almost a whole different message starting in verse number 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness. And he reasoned about self-control. And Paul reasoned about the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent, him, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left him in prison. Okay. Let's just close up by talking about this. So many applications that we could take from this. As we see, Festus has Paul for two years right in front of him, and he delays, and he puts it off, and he's frightened. I could have very easily talked about procrastination, but I figured I'd put that off for another time and talk about it later. So many applications that we have here. And let me just say here, in verses 22 and 23, we find that Paul has fair accommodations. His friends can bring him things. This is not a bad experience as far as being locked up. He would have that bad experience down the road. But let me just say this, and maybe this, you can apply this right to yourself in some way. Paul, very much so here, is more concerned with, this is what I see, he's more concerned with converting Felix and telling him the good news of Jesus Christ then securing his own release. He could have gotten out and it seems to me that over and over, so he gets two years where Felix brought him before him and I think that he had opportunity to say many things and so he chose to speak about righteousness. This is the man that's standing in front of you. This is the man that can let you go or even put you to death. We have more written in secular history about this individual than about anything that I've studied so far in the book of Acts. 
I mean, I could quote from Josephus, and there are so many different resources and things that we know about Festus and about Drusilla and about their wicked, sinful lifestyle. And this man, knowing that his life is in danger, stands before them and speaks about righteousness. This man stands before them and speaks about self-control. Festus had taken Drusilla from another man. He had no self-control. He took this time to speak to him about a coming judgment. The Jews believed it. They just didn't want to tie Jesus Christ to the resurrection. There was a judgment coming for the righteous and for the wicked. And I cannot help but think that Festus would go home at night and he would hear Paul's words again and again in his head. Self-control. A clear conscience. The coming judgment. Self-control. A clear conscience. The coming judgment. A clear conscience. And many of us would do well to stand like Paul, to be able to say, I have a clear conscience. And when you have the opportunity, and let me just go ahead and and tie that application here. The application is when we have truth, we do not back away from it, we stand with confidence. But it's not just for defense, brothers and sisters. You don't just have the truth on your side. You don't just have this confidence that God is right and you're going to make it to heaven someday just so you can defend yourself. It's so you can go on the offensive. It's so that you can be in the places where you have an impact and you have influence and you don't just wait around until they start to attack your faith and then say, boy, I've got some zingers. I can defend my faith. I can't wait till somebody says something. And Paul is the perfect example of it because in this place where he is before someone who can cut him loose or cut his head off, he chooses to talk to him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And can I suggest to you that today you have one less day to talk about it with that one in your circle than you had yesterday. Those that are in your neighborhood are going to be moving out sometime. Those that are in your family are going to be passing away sometime. Those that you work with are going to attend a retirement party with cake at some point. You have one less week to talk to them about a coming judgment and self-control. And some people deceive themselves into saying, I, 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 just, I, I, I care for them too much to talk about judgment to them. When it comes right down to it, you and I have been left in this world with a commission. We are to glorify God, and he didn't take us home right away when we understood the grace and accepted his gift of salvation, but he left us here so that we could tell others about, don't miss this, self-control. Who wants to talk about self-control to people in your group, to those guys and girls that go out and party? Why would you talk about self-control? Because it gives you a platform to talk about Jesus Christ. Because if you've had a change in your life, it's going to give you something to talk about. And that means you have to stand with a clear conscience. That means some of you men don't have to worry about if your kids or your wife or someone else gets on your computer and sees what you've been looking at. Because you have a clear conscience. It means some of you women 
Do not have to worry that so-and-so is going to tell somebody else what you said about them because you have a clear conscience. We are to walk in a way where we can stand before those accusers and say, I have a clear conscience. And there's a coming judgment and you need to be ready for it. As we look at this history and as we look at this couple and as we look, and by the way, if, if you're thinking like me, this guy had two years where he could call the Apostle Paul in any time and ask him anything. I mean, I'd, I'd give, oh, I'd give anything to have that, right? I could sol- settle a lot of these debates in our churches. And he called Paul in and would talk to him and he put it off and he put it off and we have no record that he ever turned to Jesus Christ. We have no record actually that the witnesses ever came. I think he was a true politician. He knew what he was doing as a politician. Because if he decided to let him go, he's going to have a whole bunch of Jewish people mad at him. And if he convicts him without any real charges, he might have some higher-ups that are going to be mad. So like a true politician, and I don't mean that in a negative way for the good politicians out there, he just tables it. He just tables it. He lets him stay in jail. We don't have a whole lot of what goes on in Paul's mind or in his life during that time. But I think that for those two years, going through Felix's mind was self-control a clear conscience, the judgment of God. Felix knew that there was some money represented by Paul, these many people. He brought an offering from different uh, places to Jerusalem. He knew there was money represented, so at the same time, he was hoping for a bribe and then wanting to do the Jews a favor. He knew what was good for him in politics. He left Paul in prison. He knew something of how to keep the peace. The next time we'll look at Agrippa. Well, we'll look at Festus next time and then King Agrippa after that. Now, I told you that I would finish uh, my story about how I was stuck as a high schooler and how I was being accused, sitting in the office with this intimidating figure. And as I was there, this man very convinced that I was guilty, but I was not. I turned, if you can't uh, beat him, then join him. And so I just, and I was innocent, I promise. I'm not lying here in this pulpit today, I promise. All right? I was innocent. And I said, I'll tell you what, Mr. Handyside, I'm going to make it my goal to find out who did this. I will use every resource that I have to find out who did this. I wanted to clear my name. I didn't want to be thought guilty of that. And I asked around and I looked and of course everybody knew I went to the principal's office. Some of you know what that's like. And I didn't get proven guilty. And about a year later, I was sitting in a classroom and I heard a guy named Mikey and a guy named Jimmy, and they were talking and laughing, and I kind of leaned in, and they were talking about this thing they did. Oh, they did it. They were guilty of it. And they about got me in huge, huge trouble. But I did not get in huge trouble. Why? Because I was innocent. I had a clear conscience. Can I suggest to you today what we can do from this story? You have the truth on your side, but do not just use it for your defense. Paul used it for his defense, but he went the next step and he used it on the offense. Brothers and sisters, we have the truth on our side, so do not apologize for it. And pick the right battle. 
I received a message not too long ago from an evangelist, and he was talking about his uh, story and where he grew up and his background, and he put one line down in print as he was trying to uh, get meetings at different churches. And I won't tell you his denominational background because there are some of you out there, and I don't want to offend you. Uh, But he named his denominational background, and here's what he said. He said the denomination's name, and he says they are horrible at picking hills worth dying on and realizing where the front line is. We are out of time, but let me just tell you that when you go on the offensive, you need to know what hill to die on. You need to know what battle to pick. Because if you are talking about something that honestly has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and people really, it might be even an important issue. Some people grab a hold of some of these things and they're worth studying and knowing for yourself, but you cannot lead with that. You need to lead with the resurrection. You need to get this down straight. And as we can stand with something that is confident and that is true, we can go on the offensive. And from today's text, we need to live to tell others about Let me just go ahead and say it. It doesn't preach very well. They don't put this in the church growth books, a coming judgment. By the way, there's a judgment for the wicked and for the righteous. And I think that we who know Jesus Christ and his grace will stand and will give an account for how we spent this time. This coming week, you're going to give an account. Don't waste it. Be bold. You're not going to get those weeks back. You're not going to get those months back. So determine even today that when you have an audience that you will have confidence in the truth and confidence that the Holy Spirit has been doing something in that person's life to lead you to a place where you can tell them about Jesus Christ and how wonderful Jesus is to you. You can tell them and you can show them from your life how wonderful Jesus is to you. I do not hope that you have to stand in front of a judge someday and defend the fact that you follow Jesus Christ. But I hope that when you stand in front of all of those people who are looking at you, that you can say very clearly, this is my Jesus. And he needs to be your Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Father, as you looked down so many years ago and saw a world that was in need, you freely gave your son those confusing words in the Old Testament where it says it pleased the father to bruise his son. We know that that pleased you because you are love and you loved us. God, would you allow us to count the cost? Would you allow us not just to have an answer so that we can defend ourselves and defend our faith, but allow us to have an answer so that we can work to convert people, to be a part of telling others this wonderful news and what we have and live a life where we can stand up and have a clear conscience. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm gonna ask Anna just to play through just a stanza of a song. And as she plays, it's gonna be an opportunity for you to pray. Maybe you're here today and you've never dedicated yourself to follow Jesus Christ. You can make today that day. Jesus died on a cross for your sins. And if you're not living for him, if you're not following him, if you've never asked him to forgive you, you can do so before this song is done. Maybe you're here today. You need to pray about something else we talked about. Take this time now to pray.